Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami, joined always by Danny Moses and Dan Nathan. Today, a treat. Halima Croft, Managing Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets, will be joining us. I'm excited to have that conversation, Danny. I'm here in person, by the way. What about what about me being here? Granted, you blew me away in the interview, but that's fine. Well, but you're here. I'm here I- in person. IRL. Danny's yeah. here. By the way, by the time you've listened to this podcast, Dan, mm-hmm. Danny Moses would have joined us on Fast Money, CNBC's Should Fast be quite Money. Something. You know why? And it was planned for weeks, and now the market's down. People will think, oh, they brought the short guy on again. The yeah, market's but the last down. time you came on, the market was at the 52-week high. Yeah, and so, Tesla so was 290. Go. So And, eat, and now it's it. 208. And GameStop was 24. Eat it. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to talk that. about all those things. By the way, Veterans Day this Saturday, yep. the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour, Veterans Day. We can talk about that. But Art Dela Cruz, Chief Executive Officer at Team Rubicon, he's joining us as well, Dan. And we have a giveaway on the back yeah, of that. Yeah, we do. We're giving away hats because we're going to help them raise money. We're going to do a match for Team Rubicon. So we're going to be giving away hats for anybody who gives 25 bucks or more to Team Rubicon. We're going to put the donation links in the show notes. And you're going to get an on-the-tape hat. So just give some money to Team Rubicon. It's a great organization started by uh, a good friend named Jake Wood. He's a former Marine sniper. Mm-hmm. Art Dela Cruz, the CEO. You're going to hear all about this. He was a Top Gun pilot, instructor. Sure. He's the man. So this is a great conversation great cause they train vets they deploy them to disaster zones they have 160,000 volunteers nationwide so it's a great organization so stick around for that conversation watch how my mind works i can't now. wait for this okay oh, we haven't even done a song a movie or well, a year well, that's yet. where so we're going that's where we're going it was 1972 august <laughs> did you only live in the 70s was that the, is that well, i'm here today i know it was Vinny's favorite time is that your favorite decade for everything you know what? I think part. so. Okay, I mean, a going. lot of things happened in the you 70s. You were blossoming. You know, the yeah. Chris Shambliss home run yep. happened in the 70s. If you think about it, the Yankees were awful. Chris Shambliss, in my early teens, goes yard at Yankee Stadium. And I, I've never experienced anything like that. 
Obviously, my New York football giants were not particularly We'll talk about great. that later. The Rangers were great every year, seemingly, but they never made it to the— You know, they never got to well, the— Well, you have a big birthday then. coming up soon, so I can backward. I can figure out how old you were in the 70s. That was a good time to be alive. Thank anyway, you. keep going. Anyhow, <laughs> yeah. in August of 1972, I'm just going to give you a couple lyrics because these are apropos of what's been going on over the last few weeks. Is this a Vietnam War-type lyric thing? No. Okay. A little light, a shining through the window, lets me know everything's all right. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because as my mind works, I knew we had Halima Croft. This morning, I hear Summer Breeze. And for the market- Summer Breeze makes me feel fine. That's exactly right. And over the last couple weeks, we've had this beautiful late summer breeze coming through the market. The S&P has rallied. Ten-year yields have gone from 5% down to 4.5%. And I'm swaying now, folks. You can't see it. But there's been this beautiful summer breeze, Danny, that has taken us back to levels in the S&P that I didn't think we'd get to, quite frankly. Summer breeze. We're deep in fall. I mean, we're past, just so we're on the set. Make sure that that. I got my seasons correct. No, no, no. Your seasons I mean, Florida feels like summer still. But you understand like that beautiful summer breeze. I love the fall here. I do. It's the best time of year to be up here. But is it a fake summer breeze? Yes. In other words, are we seeing faux breeze Yes. You're seeing bond auctions on trees. Well, let's talk about that because as we're taping this on a Thursday, the 30-year bond auction in a word was a disaster, an unmitigated disaster. That's two words. And it took, again, (laughs) yields went from four and a half percent in the 10-year back above 4.6. And everything seemingly is hinging on exactly that, Danny Moses. It is clear that from a positioning perspective, right, without looking daily at positioning, people got over their skis on short bonds. No, it didn't take a lot, obviously, the press conference from the Fed, the ISM number, whatever reason you want to use. And it forced a lot of people's hands to chase. And I joked about this now for the last two weeks. Everyone's become an expert on Investopedia about bond auctions and tails and, you know, when issued and all this stuff, right, at the end of the day. So ask yourself this question. We're now through the earnings season. We're, I don't know, 85%, whatever the number is, through through September quarter in earnings. Hold on. The one wild card being Yeah, but it's not a September quarter. But yes, yes, yes. Please continue. But yes, you're right, and that's important. Um, And we've gotten through this. Read the transcripts, which you won't, I'll tell you what they say, about from the big banks and the large private equity companies, right? The KKRs of the world, right? The, the Carlisles of the world and the big banks. And there's one theme that came away from the entire earnings season, normalization. Normalization of these companies that have traded many cycles before. Normalization of how do you prepare for them. Nothing catastrophic, mm-hmm. just no- secular, not cyclical. What do I mean? Again, I go back to 2008, 2009. We haven't had a recession. Right, but we haven't had to deal with what a normal environment looks like. So yes, credit will get worse over a period of time. These banks aren't going out of business. Yes, there's less IPOs, less M and A, all that stuff. Yes, these private equity companies aren't going out of business. So I think people need to take a step back and say, okay, what is a proven business model of companies that have been through this cycle before that can manage it, that acknowledge it, that see it, that are reserved for it, they're prepared, and those are the companies that you can own. I use Upstart as an example. UPST, which reported its stock was down thirty something percent the other day, from twenty eight to twenty one. The description of Upstart on their page is an AI company. I've been through this before. Okay, tech company. No, they couldn't. They had to portfolio auto loans, and they took a loss. It's, yes. a, it's basically a bank. Book value is seven bucks. That's where the stock's going, people. But I bring that up as an example of. These are not companies, a firm and upstart, that have been through cycles before. They're, they're pretending to be something they're not. And that's my theme and takeaway from earnings season right now. You have people becoming bond experts and, oh, I know the auction's going to be. It's bigger than that, right? This is a secular move. So my takeaway for this is just, again, you can own a lot of cool stuff and buy stuff on the extreme moves, but sell the stuff 
that you know you're you're kind of on borrowed time. Yeah. So I guess my takeaway from earnings season is that you know if you were like this magnificent seven and your it's expectations were high and you know you you didn't you didn't jump over them and your stock initially sold off, well you're on your way back towards your 52 week highs. Microsoft made this week a new closing high, I believe, from its July highs. You know, and again people were not so excited about their guidance, but what happened? I think as people were looking at what's going on in financials, what's going on in industrials, what's going on in transports, what's going on in healthcare. I mean, the list goes on and on. The, the, the results weren't particularly great and the guidance or visibility wasn't particularly great. So people just got right back in. You had the 10 year off that 5% and then people got right back into the stuff that was driving most of the returns all year. And I guess where I kind of shake out on this is like, that's not particularly bullish. Okay. If, if, the, if the stock market's hopes are literally in 50 basis points of a retreat in the 10 year and then all back in the hands of about a dozen stocks, then I think that if you're getting back to some sort of normalization, Danny, it's just it just creates a situation where the longer that we stay crowded in those names, the, the greater the risk is. In my think mind. about this. The knee-jerk reaction to rates moving lower, what do you buy? You buy home builders, you buy REITs, you buy, right, all that. Yep. But again, that knee-jerk reaction, I believe, going into what is a slowdown here, we've had a half a percent move of the unemployment rate off of the lows. Mm-hmm. Th- that's historic. 3.9 is still very low. Don't, don't get me wrong, but it's historic in the sense of when you have that type of directional move, what does it mean? You don't just, So I think those rallies, like those type things into the builders and into the REITs, which by the way, we work officially filed bankruptcy, right? We know how bad commercial real estate is. We know the leverage that's in the system on something like an SL Green that's kind of out there. People, take the opportunity. And I'm sure from a technical perspective, Carterworth could nail the top mm-hmm. in XHB and the top right and all these things, take advantage of those moves and sell things that you know deep down work because that is, a, again, go back to what's secular and what's cyclical. Sure, can things get oversold? Can things be overshorted? Can they be can be a near-term trade? Yes, but I believe if you're trying to get cute and trade, and I don't know where rates are going to go, but I know that rates are going to go down for the reason of economic so, slowdown. So interesting, last week, I think post-Fed reaction was that it was a dovish pause, right? And we saw the stock market rip and, and I'm just looking at Russell 2000, so small caps here. And so, you know, it had like a six and a half percent rally, like mm-hmm. two days, right? It's given it all back. So it's given it all back. What's interesting to me right now is follow some of these ones that you thought might be the leadership if we were going to have this sort of reflation trade, you know, Goldman's pushing out their recession odds. And a lot of them are just giving it back. And so to me, I, I feel like, again, if all the money, the rotation is going to be into mega cap tech because it's deemed to be defensive, I just think that sets up for an accident waiting to happen. So the higher we go, at least in the NDX, and I know it broke that downtrend that had been in place from the summer lows. The S&P did not do that, guys. So you have the S&P equal weight that doesn't act particularly well. You have small caps that don't act particularly well. And you have some very cyclical parts of the market, ex-semis, to be very fair, mm-hmm. ex-semis that act very poorly. It's interesting. We had a lot of Fed speak this week as well. And I think I hear names like Barkin is a Fed official. I think Ellen Barkin, you recall. Oh, great of course. Actress. And I think yeah. Bostic, that was a left tackle for the, <laughs> at the, the Washington football team yeah. back in the day. But Bostic said this week, and Danny, this is everything we've been talking about. Quote, I think our policy is restrictive and likely sufficiently restrictive, but I think we're going to still have some bumps along the way. Absolutely agree with that. Barkin, I believe there's a slowdown coming. I believe we're going to need that slowdown because I think that's what's going to take to convince price setters the days of pricing power are over. These are Fed officials telling you basically 
the party is over here, folks. I mean, you know, have at it as you say, Dan, yeah. but understand what we are trying to do here at the Federal Well, Reserve. the Fed official on Thursday afternoon said, if it becomes appropriate to tighten policy further, we will not hesitate to do so. So again, that is kind of throwing a little bit of water on some of those folks that thought last week's pause was dovish, Danny. Fed's done. Okay, let me, let's just be, I believe that they're done, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to get trade around the edges. What is not done is when will they start cutting? And I'll go back to this again. Like, I'm sure maybe it moved out a little bit in the I last few days. I think it's May-June now. Right. But it's kind of been in the May-June time. But again, if they pull that forward, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about the Fed here, who really hasn't gotten anything right, okay? Right. And okay, and people judge their performance based on stock market. Oh, he's doing great. No, and no, then, no. And then, and then, no, no, no. Don't and, look at me and say that. Not you, but people. Thank you. And then they'll happen today. Powell blew it. He said something wrong. And the, the market said, forget that. Forget all of that. It's a sideshow. I believe the Fed will cut next year, and I believe it will be sooner than people probably think. What that does to the stock market pull forward, I don't believe it's positive because I believe we're talking about unemployment ticking, mm-hmm. you know, materially higher from here. It is one direction. Look at what these look what eBay said on their call, right? So we're so focused here on the U.S., right? It's the S&P 500, but they sell stuff overseas. eBay talked about Germany and the U.K. and the stagflationary environment that's going over there, how their margins are getting it, how people aren't spending. Like, I think we forget, again, we're and we should be focused on here because that's what we really talk about. These earnings calls, don't listen to me. Don't listen to the three of us. Go listen to the companies themselves, and, and you can come to your own conclusion. So I just think that things are slowing across you know, across the globe. I will give credit. The Fed is down below $8 trillion now. I think $7.85 trillion. We get new numbers every Thursday, unfortunately. So when we tape this, we don't know. Trying to keep undoing this QE. Yeah, good for them. Q, yeah, trying to undo this QE. Yeah, good for them. Right. But again, it's only a trillion off the, the high. No, no, no. I right. listen. So they, they, they had to do it at some point. Yeah. So so we'll see what happens. But again, yes, you have to pay attention to the macro, but focus on the micro. And when you get these big sell-offs that we had, right, you have opportunities to potentially buy things. There's some guy in the United States. I think the five most expensive properties in the country are owned by this gentleman. One in your home state of Florida, Danny. Mm. Uh, probably in Connecticut. Here in New York City. Is I'm this sure. Ken Griffin? Exactly. Okay. Why do I mention? Because if you've gotten to that level in life, I think it's fair to say, whether you like them or not, there's a modicum of intelligence that's associated with that type of success. Why do I bring him up? Ken Griffin this week. I quote, we are likely to see higher real rates and we're likely to see higher nominal rates. Oh, Sounds a lot like what Jamie Dimon has been saying, Dan Nathan. Jamie Dimon being probably the most important banker in the world. So when you start, again, Danny just said it. Don't listen to us. Listen to what these folks are saying. And Ken Griffin has no dog in this. He doesn't give a shit what happens. As long as things move, he's fine. So for him to say this, he actually believes it. Yeah, and to Danny's point, I mean, you don't think the Fed is going to be raising rates anytime soon. You think they're going to be cutting at some point in the not-so-distant future. Let's call it six to nine months or something like that. Yes. The, the reason that they yeah. would be doing that is obviously a material slowdown, okay? So, like, for instance, if they had to support the economy once again, and that's why you have Fed funds above 5%, right? So you can start to do that again. But I go back to this thing that, you know, again, Danny, I think you started talking about it in, in mid-2021. We were talking about what does stagflation mean for risk assets, right? And so if Jamie Dimon's right, okay, if Ken Griffin's right, if real rates, nominal rates, if they reset at a higher level, that means inflation's higher, that means rates are higher. That's what the Russell the 2000 is telling you. And that's what investors are saying in non-profitable tech stocks. That's why there's no shortage of other companies that went public via SPAC are going to go bankrupt. That's why we're starting to see delinquencies go higher. That's why we're seeing reserves go higher. Normalization. So again, normalization over cycles, to Guy's point, the Fed and the powers that be have alchemied out 
those cycles over the last few years or so. I will take issue with one of those comments sure. you made. You don't have to have high inflation to have rates move higher. We talked about this whole yeah. supply and demand. That's the scary part. Yeah. Inflation yes. starts to come down and rates stay high. That's the scary part because because you have no growth, GDP, right? Because obviously, if, as Mike Wilson talks about, his biggest fear or why he's bearish is he believes, okay, great, inflation's coming down. Why yeah. is it coming down? Right, because the good demand is less, like on the back. So those are the things. You that could you have gotta... commodity prices come in. You could have food prices come in. That you could have wages stay bid, and that would be inflation, right? Right. And that would have... be not good for corporate earnings. What I'm saying is, is like if you buy the deglobalization, the worse things get geopolitically, the better the case it is for reshoring, friendshoring, all that. Sort the of more stuff. inflation, yeah. the Which, worse things yeah. get, the more inflationary things. But it doesn't are. mean that there needs to be a bid for commodities. Well, one of the other things that kind of got lost that it turns out that I guess the Federal Reserve was starting to approve some of these Wall Street banks' ability to offload some of this risk to PE. It's not a huge deal, but in order to meet these requirements for Basel and free up the balance sheet and all this stuff, they're coming up with off these- Off-ramps. Yeah, there's off-ramps, which yep. are going on again, which is kind of interesting. I've been talking about what can the Treasury or Fed do to kind of relieve some of the stress. It's the SLR requirements, mm-hmm. potentially, of these banks. They're going to do it different ways. However, the FHLB came out this week and said, no more tapping our window if you're not really one of the people that should be tapped. That's been a big issue. I think it's $1.3 trillion people have taken from the FHLB. Well, Every federal home loan bank. No, I know, but they're now on because again, yeah. that's the balance sheet, yeah. right? So pay attention to these other kind of things behind the scenes. So again, well, well first things yeah. first. Housing sounds like it's going to be a disaster really soon. Okay, so that's the other knock-on effect. If interest rates stay high, and you have commercial real estate is going into the tank for a whole host of different reasons here. If you see unemployment tick up, and we talked about this with Rosie last week, you mm-hmm. know, unemployment tick up. You know, people who are locked into these really low mortgages who ultimately have a reason to have to sell. That's not good. And then the other thing, I just want to make one point about this non-bank lending stuff. This sounds like this is going to be a real deal. Like every day today was Elliot's raising a, a new fund to do seven billion They're in filling the void. lending, and this. Yeah. And, and I'm just saying though, but doesn't this have vibes, Danny, a little bit of kind of the, some of the the creative 100%. financial? You know what I mean? Like the stuff. Hundred percent. You had the, all the subprime companies were effectively non-bank financials that existed from warehouse lines from the banks to produce the mortgages. This is my point on the short now cover later. Sorry. Buy now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you got that wrong. Pay, pay later, who are now portfolioing the loans that they were supposed to be offloading, right? So that's my point, Dan. It's backing up in the system. But you bring up a great point. These private credit and all this stuff that's going to go on the opportunity, these are not dumb people that are going to be originating these loans. They're going to want, you know, they're going to take their pound of flesh from the companies, 13%, 12%, warrants, all this stuff. That's the normalization. That's the repricing. And the companies that have existed, these zombie companies that got bailed out multiple times through QE and the COVID stimulus and through the treasury out there actually buying high yield and all this stuff, that game is now over. And that's the part I think that's really important. And to close the loop on housing, Dr. Horton, DHI, mm. right? Quarter was fine. Like the stocks, obviously, these stocks aren't expensive unless you believe that earnings through 24 and 25 are going to start dropping, which they may. They said on the call, we're doing rate buy downs to get people in homes. We're using more incentives to get people in homes. When you have to start doing those things, that's not a naturally occurring sales cycle. They did those things back in the day. That's a precursor. Pay attention, people. There have been some unfortunate names in the history of mankind. I'll name a few Agnes Moorhead, who played Endora in Bewitched. I mean, Beautiful woman, unfortunate name, and no reason to give, but I'm just putting it out there. Randy Smallwood, for example, he's the CEO of a publicly traded company, a bit of an unfortunate name. I mention that because SoftBank might be the most apropos name in the history of mankind. Whatever they do, do the opposite. We work, which I think they top ticked whenever we work. Tell me you're going to Arm Holdings. You're going there. Well, right I now. was going to go. I yeah. was going to go. We and Arm Holdings, which just reported this week, their first report as a publicly traded company was not particularly good. You say what you want. The guidance was 
disastrous. And SoftBank has their tentacles and all this stuff. So before our eyes, we're seeing bankruptcies. We're seeing some pretty poor reports from some pretty important companies. Thoughts on that, Danny Moses? We work was expected, so that's a four. But no, no, but, it was expected. No, it was expected. But, but think but, about the top tick. For oh no, Bank of Oh no, I, we've talked about. Yes. It. We've, we we talked about him and then the inner dealings with Credit Suisse that they were involved in Greensill and all that stuff right back in the day. And obviously, you know, that was a bull market baby, as we say, kind of SoftBank. They had a, one or two really good trades, and everything else has been, let's be frank, disaster. Shit. But let's talk about Instacart and Arm for a second, right? I know they were involved in Arm, not in the Instacart. Great job, guys. I mean, so if you're the bankers for those companies, you brought them out. They really saw their IPO price for about an hour dropped, and now. Yeah, if you made you guided down or if the guidance is not as good as what had been expected, right? Shocking. These stocks, by the way, it'll be years before they get back to the IPO prices. Like think about it. It'll be we we all we all know how that works. I don't have to have Carter here to kind of tell me that. But not a good look for the rest of the IPO calendar that's trying to fit through a window here that probably has about three to four weeks left if there was gonna be one that was gonna come. But listen, guy, the transition away from the easy money time period, again, I talked about James Gorman, right? Mm-hmm. Last week I greatest trade of all. Oh, what year did you start? January 2010. Welcome. My son, who was 10 at the time, probably could have, have done that job. By the way, we find out now there's an investigation into Morgan Stanley's we private saw. wealth. We see that now. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyway, you can read in that how you want. But again, don't confuse brains with a bull market is the old adage in the sense. Yeah, but going back to the IPO thing, I mean, we have a NASDAQ 100 that's up 40%. We have a NASDAQ that's up 30%, and you can't bring an arm holdings. You can't bring an Instacart. You can't at the right price. Well, here's the problem with an Instacart. I mean, the company is losing money, and they're only expected to grow sales 10% a year for the next couple of years. So they brought forward a company that is expensive, doesn't make any money, and has a shit ton of competition. You know what I mean? So like, I I am absolutely shocked that how little uh, of the waters have been tested in the markets here too, because you would think that if you don't get them out now, you better have a great economy next year, right? Like, and then a stock market that is commensurate, or it's going to be the longest window that we have not seen deals come to the market in a long time. And there's a lot of pent up demand to get these things out the window. Right before our very eyes, once again, right before gover- my very eyes. You've never done that That's one. That's beautiful. What year was that? That 75. If you got that right, we'll, well, check, we'll, we'll check that we'll later. We'll in okay. the show notes. That's right. a great song. Yeah. Chicago, by the way. Yes. Anyway, I'm not a big Chicago fan. Whatever. With that said, government <laughs> shutdown looming again. Now, they will get through this. I'm not saying trade on the government. But the question is, you know, what are going to be the what are going to be the carve outs in order to get the sufficient votes to do this? And it has geopolitical concerns, I think, Danny. Maybe I'm making too much out of it. But I'm telling you, here we are at the threshold, the doorstep yet again, and nothing seems to be getting done. Yeah, I don't know how to predict that stuff. It's it's so discouraging and depressing when you think about just what's going on in D.C. in general, in every aspect, right? But the last thing you need in a slowing economy with massive geopolitical risk is a Washington, D.C. that is that is not performing, that is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that should scare people, right, to a degree. So how predictable is that guy? I don't think it's priced into the market at all. Not at what all. What does it mean? They'll have some extension. They'll do a budget. They'll do a continuing resolution. They'll do something to get it through year end, obviously, in my opinion. But you're right. What does that look like? And what does it mean to the funding of these wars? And what does it mean? And it's a big issue. And people should care about the security and the risk in, in the world. And again, not going down that rabbit hole. We're here to talk about you know stocks and so, and so forth. But it is something to consider, guy, that I don't think is priced into the market. And we'll have that conversation with Halima in terms of, you know, our enemies, which we have a lot of, are watching and they're saying, okay, what are they giving up? What are the reconciliations they're making, the accommodations they're making 
in order to push this thing through. And what type of opening does that give us, Dan? And quite frankly, I'm concerned by it. Maybe again, maybe I'm looking at the half empty all the time, but I look at this and say, you know what? The market is not taking into full consideration what all this means. Listen, the market today though, we're you know coming into the close on Thursday and you know the S&P is closing very near its lows, down 80 bips. The NASDAQ's down 1%. It's funny that, that you just mentioned that bond auction. So we saw the reversal in yields. I think the 10-year was below, just below maybe four and a half-ish mm-hmm. yesterday day or so and here we are at you know kind of four six three and so I, I guess I wonder guys before we kind of want to really focus on the macro and what that means for the global economy what it means for corporate earnings and, and the like here it's like what is the 10-year yield Carter was on market call with us earlier in the week he says he thinks he could see the yield go back to 4.1 percent okay some other think they could go back up to five percent really quickly here let's just call it four at five that's the band that we're in before the Fed's gonna move right and so we see the two-year based on that more hawkish kind conversation today, it's kind of right back here at that kind of 5% sort of bound. What do equities do if we continue to have weak data, if yields come in because of that data? At some point, it's actually not that bullish for stocks. And when you think about the bounce that the S&P has now 6% off those lows from just a couple weeks ago, it's actually pulled forward any excitement about stocks able to work in a higher interest rate environment, in my opinion, because everything that we've seen from the jobs data to the ISM and what I suspect from some other data over the next couple of weeks is going to show the economy is slowing. That 4.9% GDP print was a fugazi. Atlanta Fed GDP now is saying about 2% or so. I feel like the economy is slowing and that's not good for stocks. No, and I think that the setup, we talked about the short covering in bonds that yeah. occurred over the last week, right? Their hands were forced. We see it through all the commodities, all of FIC, right? Fixed income, commodities, currencies, everything that just moves. We've talked about the 10-year yield for a long time in terms of that. So I think it was positioning, Dan. And I think people all of a sudden, I mentioned jokingly, but true, that they think they're they're experts. Everyone knows what the auction amount is. Everyone knows where the win issued is, is supposed to be trading. Everyone knows when the bids are due. Bid to cover was low, 2.2 or something like that. Oh, we want a 2.4. I think the short covering wave happened in treasuries. But the scary thing to me, Dan, is that if you start to get yields to drift to that 4142 with no equity market rally, that's the signal that should scare people. I've been saying that, but don't get trapped on the equity market when, when yields come in because it's bigger than that. And that back to my opening comments and this thing about how it's secular with, with a cycle put into it. So I think it's just positioning and I think we need to pay more attention to that. And shame on me. I thought yields would come in anyway, but I didn't think equities would rally with it, right? But it's positioning. Same thing, by the way, when people look at stocks. People hate short sellers, really. If you have a high short interest on a name and you truly believe in the fundamentals of a company, it should be your biggest position that you have because you have an embedded buyer. These bonds ran out of shorts, right? People were off over their skis, right? That's all it was, right? And now what happened? Probably, I'm guessing, the positioning was just evening out of the short position. Yeah, before so. we get to your picks, I think yeah. a number, there was a confluence of events, as they say. I mean, that Janet Yellen comment, which I don't, again, for the life of me, I don't understand why the market took her taking 2 or $3 billion away, why they construed that as pop. But that coupled with Bill Ackman deciding that he was exiting, by the way, Great trade by him, coupled with the fact that, Danny, you mentioned, and we talked about this offline on Monday, that we did not take positioning into consideration nearly enough. Now, I will tell you, Carter and I had a conversation a couple weeks ago. I thought the TLT could trade up to 88 and a half, 89, which should coincide with sort of four, five, five or so. But I'll be honest and say, I didn't think it was going to happen in three days. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. So positioning is important. We'll try to watch that a little closer 
moving forward. But I got to tell you something. If yields go to 4.1%, it's probably because the market is cascading lower. And if yields start to go higher because these auctions continue to suck, that's not going to be poison. good for the market. Pick your poison. By that's, the way, just a little a preview, which thing. I'm probably going to steal your thunder, Dan. The fact that we're going down to Naples, going to be talking to the guy. <laughs> Terry Duffy, the, the CME, who is seeing the trading of these, all this, pro, all yeah. these products gone, couldn't have better timing. So sorry to that's front next run you. Week. That's next week, by the way. All right, so, let, let, one thing before we yeah. get to your pick. So we wouldn't be on the tape podcast. We didn't talk about the week that uh, Tesla's had so far. I mean, the stock was down five and a half percent today. Really? It was a, yeah, it had like a sell rating at a HSBC, <laughs> and, yeah. and then there was well, some, that was there was some was negative comment about this. The Cybertruck cyber supposedly truck. horrendous. Yeah. yeah, no, it looks horrendous. Yeah. It's going to be horrendous, that sort of thing. But that's a that's a big move for a stock. Of this size, think I think so? it's a big move because it had to move down to the high what 190s. They got down to like 193, right? Kind of, and then recovered again. Yeah. And people thought, it oh, recovered, but it I'll was a buy. You know why dip. it recovered? It recovered because yields went lower because yes. it, Elon Musk came out Correct. and talked about how yields were. Ki- Listen, there's some truth to there is cost truth. of funding, and, and I get that. But on the but again, this thing doesn't this thing doesn't trade on fundamentals. It doesn't trade as an auto company, but that's what it is. I think it's kind of running out of buyers. The same way that GameStop, the same way AMC, you're just running out. You of said them. a couple weeks ago you lost one, so it's no longer the Mag Seven. What are you calling them now? What do you got? I think it, in honor of Veterans Day, I think it's Steel Team Six. Mm. You know, well, it was what you did there. there is no there is no seven anymore. I don't understand. You name those seven companies in order, and you say which one doesn't yeah. belong. It would be the auto company. That one doesn't belong there. It trades at 60 times or whatever the number is on Earth. It's not magnificent. You come into this week 10 at a robust, actually, that's probably a bit. I'm happy per- where I'm probably. going. 15 to 12. Yeah. I mean, you're making a, money. You could retire. That's a record. You could retire if you even knew that's what the, your record Even with the vigorous. Yes, you could retire. That's a, you could, yeah. well, well, that's like a carried away. Vigorous. Yeah. But as we enter week 10, a lot of interesting games on the docket. I mean, Seriously, guy. Shame on me. I nailed the first two games and then decided to take the Jets. People out there that are Jet fans, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you give your kids to be make them make them Jet fans. Just enough. It was the most painful. It was the first time I really sat down and watched like a game. So I lost that Jet game. Now I'm upset, so I'm going to go against them. Oh, but I'll like get to this. that in a I mean, second. Okay. Guy, I got to come at you first. Dallas nice. is going to, when I say demolish the mm-hmm. Giants, okay, the line Opened, I think, at 14. I think it's 17 and a half so at this point. Insane. There's not a number that you could give me that I wouldn't take Dallas. I love Dallas this week. If you if you recall, like Jerry Jones likes to run it up on the Giants. It's yeah. like they're like a college football team thinking they're playing for the number one ranking. Agreed. They're gonna demolish him. Take Dallas. That's my that's my top pick of the week by far. My next pick is going against the Jets because they're going out to Las Vegas, right? If and I think the Raiders are coming together a little bit. Yes, you could wear off Antonio Pierce, the excitement. Aiden O'Connell looks good. He's got that cool mustache, the quarterback from Purdue. I think the Jets, I mean, they obviously can't score points. The question is, can can the Raiders score points? I actually think they will. My last game, I'll rank them in order. Those are one, two. The third game, which I just have to take Jacksonville, getting three at home against San Francisco. Both are off of bye weeks, right? But they're at home. Give me Jacksonville in the points. Yes, you know, I think Samuel's coming back for San Francisco. They get some people back from injury. Mm-hmm. They rested up. But Brock Purdy, you know, hasn't looked great. And, for the and last four now, games. They could come out. But this is a huge game, by the way. It's probably one of the biggest games of the week. So give me Jacksonville plus three. Those are my three. Can I get in here? I want to take Detroit minus three. You just ruined everyone in Detroit. (laughs) the Chargers. Oh, my God. I actually like the Chargers. Do you want to go? Yeah. Yeah. It's our first bet of the year? Yeah, let's do it for Team Rubicon. $1,000. All right, so I got Detroit minus three for for a stick. Yeah, for whatever you want. Whatever. For Team Rubicon. You got it. All right. When we come back, the great Halima Croft, without question, the quintessential – I mean, she is the axe in the space. Amazing. So you got to stick around for that. And our conversation with Art Delacruz, the CEO of Team Rubicon. Stick around. 
With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In the National Hockey League, names like Gordy Howe, Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr, Mark Messier. Mark Messier. In professional baseball, Ted Williams, Henry Aaron, Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, right? Yeah. NBA, Wilt Chamberlain. Bill Russell. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. I can go on. In our world, there's certain names as well that reach the upper echelon, the stratosphere. One of those names is Halima Croft, and she is with us today. She is a managing director and global head of commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets, and we are thrilled that she's joining us here on the tape. Halima, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. I was waiting for some like Zinedine Zidane. I was waiting <laughs> Zidane. for like do I know that soccer. Soccer. soccer, soccer, the Much global sport. If we uh-huh. want to make this, David pod, you know what? Be- because. RBC is the Royal Bank of Canada. We could do Mato, Mato, Mato. No, well, right. no, we couldn't. Why? But so, Jezine, Zidane. Zidane, yes. What I know, Giorgio Kinalia. Anyway, it's a digression here, without question. But you, seriously, Danny, you know this, Dan, you as well. I mean, there's certain voices in that space, in the commodity space, that are preeminent. You are that voice. The commodity world, specifically the energy space, seemingly on a daily basis basis, things are changing. And if we just look at through the lens of crude oil, just for now, I mean, the price volatility has been fascinating. And I will tell you, if you had told me all the things that would transpire in September into October, early November, and said, okay, guy, do the math, where's crude oil going to be? On top of which, yields going to 4.5% in a 10-year, I'm like, oh my God, we're $105, $110 a barrel. Yet here we are struggling to get through 75 bucks or so. I mean, just, I'm not looking to play stock market or commodity market, but has this surprised you? It has surprised me, but I actually think that one of the sort of key factors is if we go back to when I came on this podcast in March of Mm -hmm. 22, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there had been tremendous expectation that we would see significant Russian supply losses. Remember, everyone was talking about self-sanctioning, companies weren't gonna touch Russia, the prospect of potentially 3 million barrels off the market. And a lot of traders went long. I remember prices Mm -hmm. ran up. And then all of a sudden, 
no major disruption materialized. And I think what we're seeing right now, particularly with this war in the Middle East, which, by the way, I think could get considerably worse, is a lot of market participants had a bit of wake-up risk. They woke up, they saw this, and they got a little long. But now they're saying, wait a second. There's no material disruption. This is going to be Russia all over again. I'm going to fade this story. Let me go back to worrying about China. Let me go back to worrying about rates. I'm not going to price in any geopolitical risk premium. And when Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, was out last Friday essentially saying, I didn't play a role on October 7th. We're not looking to become involved at this stage. A lot of market participants were like, I'm going to turn the page on this story. I'm going to fade it for now. So for people that don't know your background, I think it's worth going over again, yes. because from a national security perspective, this is really what we're talking about. There's yes. that, that aspect of it, and it always marries itself with this one commodity. I mean, oil has yes. always been kind of front and center. So maybe spend a couple minutes on your CIA background, if you're even allowed to talk oh, about I that. Oh, I am. I was an you're, analyst. Okay. So I, I wasn't in operation. I right. But yeah. you're a, you've been part of like a lot of this isn't like you're just learning this stuff for the first time. You've been involved for decades. Yes. I'm sort of last man look, standing. Right. So give us a little background. I think it's important to put that in perspective. No, I, I joined the CIA right after 9-11. I actually walked in the door of the CIA on December 1, 2001. And I was part of an effort at the time that was to look at worldwide threats to oil disruption because there was a big focus on America's dependency on foreign oil. And what did that mean in terms of the geographies that we were sourcing oil from? And there was great concern about concentration risk. Are we getting too much oil from one part of the world? And what does that fund? And so we were very focused on diversification of supply, getting more oil from places like sub-Saharan Africa, from the stands. And then we had a, a series of disruptions as we were going into the Iraq war. Remember, we had the Venezuelan oil strike, which they really never recovered from. If you look at Venezuelan output, we had major disruptions in Nigeria of oil supply. And we went into the Iraq war, which we thought was going to be a short war. Remember, four weeks in after the U.S. invasion, we thought, Saddam is gone. They took the statue down. This is going to be easy. But we did lose significant amounts of oil from Iraq, and hundreds of thousands of people died. And it was a much longer engagement than we anticipated. So I, I think I have a bit of a bias when I look at these geopolitical events in the market. And I wonder, how could this go in a way that market participants are not expecting? How could this go off track? Whereas, again, I think a lot of market participants focus on the barrels and say, I don't see an immediate barrel risk. I'm moving on. But I'm always thinking about, you know, how could it get worse? Well, right now, it's seemingly getting better in terms of U.S. production. If you look, I mean, the U.S. is doing a great yes. job. Now, if you watch certain cable stations, they will tell you that there's no oil production here in the United States. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, here we are at probably levels we maybe have never seen before. Remember where they said we would never be back to 13? Here we are. Here we are. Which is, I mean, if you think about that, it's pretty remarkable given this administration, given some of the things they talked about heading into the election in 2020, where production is in the United States. So I guess some of it makes sense. But in terms of let's just go down the SPR route, people will say it's not as important now, the diminished SPR, because of U.S. production. Is that true? Well, I mean, certainly, I think U.S. production and the shale revolution was a game changer. I do think that it gave us the potential to think about foreign policy differently. Now, the question is, are we still dependent on foreign supplies of oil? 
Absolutely. And I always think there was a symbiotic relationship between shale and OPEC that we can talk about, that ultimately shale was dependent on getting a price support and a floor from OPEC. But in terms of the SPR, certainly, you know, we are a major producer. We don't have to worry as much about supply disruption. But from a standpoint of national security, it's in these moments when you're thinking about could a war in the world's most prolific production zone take significant barrels off the market? It causes anxiety when we think about would we have to do further coordinated stockpile releases if prices went significantly higher? And we're not there yet. But again, the, the concern always is what if a war were to spread to a country like Iran? It's not just Iran's current production that would be potentially at risk. What would that mean for oil flowing through the Straits of Hormuz? So you like to have the SPR because you never know when you actually may need to use it. Let me follow up on that because do you think that knowledge, what you just put forth, emboldens Iran? They understand that conflict with them, what that would create, the problems here in the United States. So they say there's no way into an election year they're going to risk gasoline prices going north of five bucks. So, you know, we can sort of, I don't know, flex our muscles a little bit in terms of what's going on. Is there any truth to that? I think that is a risk. And I, I do think when you look at the policy that this administration, and this is not a criticism, but they've been very, very focused on keeping oil on the market. I often said with the Russian war, when the start of the war, we made the decision to almost sanction everything but Russian oil. We sanctioned the Russian Central Bank the first time a G20 Central Bank had been sanctioned. We disconnected Russian banks from the SWIFT payment system, but we kept doing carve-outs for oil transactions. And when you think about price caps, price caps, I think, were really a policy to keep Russian oil on the market. It wasn't really a Russian revenue reduction effort. That was a nice byproduct if it happened, but it was really to ensure that the EU six package of sanctions, which was banning the provision of services to move Russian oil to third markets, that would not basically be effective. And so when you think about Iran, Iran has seen our preoccupation with keeping the market well supplied. And if you look at the growth we have seen in Iranian oil exports, there is a lot of conjecture that the White House went soft on sanctions enforcement in order to keep prices contained. Also, they wanted to get hostages released. They wanted Iran to not enrich uranium at any higher levels. They did not want them building a bomb. And so going soft on sanctions may have served multiple purposes. But the question is now, is that sustainable? And frankly, is the White House in control of events in the Middle East at the moment? When you look at the price of oil and you try to break it down from supply and demand, geopolitical risk, and so forth, like you try to, let's say, let's use $80 as the number. How much is geopolitical? How much is supply and demand? And I'll add to that and get your thoughts on this. The cost of production for each of the nations that actually produce the oil is different. Everybody has a different level, right? So in that game of kind of where things tend to flock to from a price perspective. And then the flip side of that is we get to a level in the U.S. where there's demand destruction. And we saw numbers in gasoline demand drop big in the last few, and it created a little. So how do you factor all that in to try to figure out? Well, I would say if we look at current prices, I think that we've basically taken out the geopolitical risk premium in the market. I really think that when Hassan Nasrallah gave that speech on Friday and was like, we are not getting involved for now, mm -hmm. the remaining price risk in the market kind of came out. And then when you think about like 
who are the producers and how much does it cost to extract the oil, I think for the Middle East and many of the sovereign oil producers in OPEC, that's not necessarily the entire story. And so the question is not how much does it cost to get oil out of the ground in many of these countries, because in the Middle East, it is inexpensive to get oil out of the ground compared to other parts of the world. But what does that have to fund? What are the government's spending commitments? So what price do you need to fund your ambitious social transformation programs? If you're looking at something like Vision 2030 in Saudi Arabia, how much do you want to borrow? How much do you want to hire oil price? Because that money from oil goes into the sovereign wealth funds, which fuel this massive diversification program. And part of the reason why I brought up Zidane, not just because I'm a huge fan of his, which I am, it's because if you look at one of the big aspects of what Saudi Arabia has been doing, it's been on sports. Mm -hmm. Whether it live, and we'll see what happens with live, but look at what they've done in terms of soccer, as most of the world would say football, in terms of their acquisitions, not only like Newcastle United, but what they've done with their domestic league. They spent almost a billion dollars in the summer transfer window, acquiring some of the greatest soccer talent in the world for their Saudi league. It started with the acquisition of Cristiano Ronaldo, but we've seen player after player in this effort to build this up. So the question about what do they need in terms of paying for getting the oil out of the ground? I think the more relevant question is, what do they need in terms of oil prices to sustain this transformation, which is aimed at providing millions of new non-government jobs to young people? Let me, let me ask you a question on this. So in terms of the bad actors and how we view all these countries, they all have negative aspects to them. Like we can rank them China, who buys oil and is buying oil from Russia. We can rank Russia, Saudi. Iran, right? In that order. Who are we willing to just accept to keep the market running smoothly in that order? Like, obviously. I think we're almost willing to accept everyone. Yeah. I think that's currently- Well, Venezuela, I mean, you think that's, great, the, that's the example. That is the example. And again, I think that is the dilemma that we find ourselves in. And again, this is what we thought the shale revolution was changing. We thought the shale revolution was changing the bargains that we needed to make in order to secure oil. And I remember this so clearly. I actually wrote an op-ed in the FT after I left the CIA and went to the Council on Foreign Relations because we saw this in the early 2000s that we were like, we need the oil. And so an election might not be a great election, but we're willing to look the other way. We're willing to potentially give IMF relief or you know, Paris Club relief to a country because we wanted to have a better relationship with them because we thought we needed their oil. So there was a whole politics of oil dependency that we thought the shale revolution was changing. And yet we see now an administration that came in very focused on the energy transition, keep the oil in the ground, is now essentially saying, no, put the money in the ground to US producers. And with foreign suppliers essentially saying, like, we'll look the other way. We need the oil. And nothing encapsulates this more than Venezuela. It's fascinating. The politics around oil, and if you think about this, and again, politics bore the shit out of me. So this is not political, but factually, this is true. During the Trump administration, they actually went, you know this, to OPEC and said, you got to cut production. You're killing our shale industry with the prices, which if you think about it, it's mind boggling. So I guess my question to you is, you know, what is the sweet spot for U.S. shale production in terms of price? Because at a certain point, 
it no longer makes sense on the downside. And on the flip side of that coin, things get pretty expensive pretty quickly. Well, I think that bringing up President Trump is is fascinating because I, I joked by the end that President Trump was the de facto president of OPEC. Yeah. So we would always watch the Trump tweets where he would be like, this is too, prices are too high. OPEC, you have to put more production on the market. And I remember once I was, I was actually at OPEC and President Trump tweeted that he had spoken to somebody at OPEC and they were going to get their act together. And I remember the late Secretary General of OPEC, but he was saying, who did he call? Did he call you, Vera? So he's trying to figure out who Trump had called at the Secretariat. But we really saw Trump being you know, pretty aggressive and trying to manage OPEC on both sides yeah. of the equation. And I remember, and politics were really intertwined in this, because I remember when the U.S. exited the Iranian nuclear agreement. Remember in 2018, we exited JCPOA. And there was a view that we were going to impose maximum pressure and take Iran out of the oil market. And remember that summer, prices ran up. And we were thinking there's going to be a million barrel gap in the market when we take Iran out in terms of exports. And I remember being at that OPEC meeting. And the first statement from OPEC was not particularly expansive in terms of how many more barrels they were going to put on the market. And Brian Hook, who was then President Trump's envoy for Iran, was there in Vienna. He wasn't in the actual secretariat, but he was in Vienna. And the next day, the Saudi oil minister came out and said, there was some ambiguity about our intentions. Let us be clear. We're going to do a million barrels and we'll do it alone if necessary. And that really like stabilized prices. But then in October, President Trump issued, I think it was seven waivers for importers of Iranian oil. OPEC was flat-footed because all of a sudden they'd oversupplied the market and prices went down to the 30s. And so to me, that was a very interesting illustration because you're right. And then in 2020, when you had the COVID demand crash, but you also had a price war between Russia and Saudi. And I remember I was at that OPEC meeting when they couldn't agree. I went to Saudi right afterwards for the G20 energy security workshops. And President Trump wasn't quite clear in the early days of that price war whether this was a good thing because low oil prices was good for the U.S. consumer. And then you had shale executives start putting the call into President Trump saying, hey, you know what? American energy dominance, that whole policy you love, ends now if you can't get this group back together. So literally you had President Trump like involved in getting the biggest OPEC plus cut done in the group's history. And I remember like the 11th hour when they were meeting in April, Mexico decided they were not signing on because Lopez Obrador had run on make Pemex great again. And so Mexico was not going to cut. And so there was a question about like, could you get the agreement? And apparently President Trump got involved and was like, don't worry about Mexico. Just go ahead and get this done. And to me, that was fascinating. Because again, somebody who had been a critic of OPEC coming into office, talked about American energy dominance, by the end of his term was essentially like micromanaging this producer group. You just mentioned that the the geopolitical risk premium has come out of the commodity, right? So we've had this 20% move in what, five, six weeks or so, 95 to 75. What's the pain trade from here? Again, you just mentioned that you think the situation in the Middle East gets probably worse before it gets better. Can we continue to see just basically a disregard for any premium being placed on geopolitical risk? Well, there are two things to watch for. First of all, we're having an OPEC meeting at the end of the month. And the question is, 
do this, this OPEC, to Saudi Arabia, believe they have to put in a, a circuit breaker? Remember this happened in October of last year, caught the White House flat-footed. We actually thought they were going to cut going into that meeting because they don't want to go back to a 2015 situation. They don't want a situation where they're so hands-off that the macro sellers pile in. You have massive inventory buildup because you go for market share. They want to remain activists in terms of managing the market. Like Prince Abdelaziz bin Salman thinks of himself very much as like a central banker. So I see no indications they're going to abandon market management. They're not going back to the price war again. But the question is, how do you tweak the policy? Do you extend your unilateral production cut into the first quarter of next year? Do you go deeper? Can you get everybody together to go deeper? Like these are going to be the, the questions in terms of the OPEC management in the next couple of weeks. Like what do they come up with in terms of the decision? But then when it comes to the Middle East situation, I mean, things you have to really be watching for. There is a very serious effort that is taking place in Doha, literally as we speak, to try to craft an agreement to essentially find the hostages, get the hostages released, and then potentially have some type of cessation in the Israeli bombing campaign. Like that's where they really are. And the concern is like if they can't get this to agreement together, like, could you see this potentially spread to a wider conflict? And you should be watching every day what happens with Iranian-backed groups in the region. I mean, we've had more attacks on U.S. personnel. Every day we get something new, particularly in Iraq, particularly in Syria. The U.S. has responded with limited strikes on Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps targets in Syria, but nothing major yet. But I feel like we're one missile away from a very serious situation. If there was a significant loss of American life in the region, I think President Biden would have to respond. On top of the crude story, which we are talking about, there's a gasoline story here, which is, in terms of the fundamentals, has been deteriorating right before our very eyes. I think there was a piece out earlier this week about gas demand in the United States and then global gas demand being at levels we haven't seen in quite some time, which is obviously not particularly uh, constructive for the gasoline price, but then that obviously has ramifications for crude oil as well. Absolutely. I think the, the interesting thing to think about with gasoline is it's always been this debate back and forth is, are we seeing really significant deterioration in gasoline demand, or do we have an issue with refineries? There was big demand for distillates. If you look at inventories for distillates, they were very, very low levels. And did the refinery economics essentially favor running hard to produce distillates, and you had a lot of surplus gasoline produced that wasn't needed. And so the question is, did we actually end up with a gasoline supply glut because of the refinery economics, or did we truly have a, a slowdown in demand? I mean, clearly we have indications that we had a lot more gasoline out there than required. And again, that was also you know, breathing room for the administration, because you brought up that oil prices should, you think would be significantly higher given all these developments. If you think about the White House, they have been so lucky 
in the sense of where we are in terms of retail gasoline prices, because that is really the economic pain point. I don't think the U.S. consumer is necessarily watching the interday moves in terms of Brent and TI, but they are going to their filling station and looking at pump prices. And in there is that psychological pain point at $4 a gallon. So being on the other side of that has been very, very helpful for this administration. I know you don't cover single stocks, but there's been some M&A that's gone on. I don't know what your thoughts are of how the U.S. government was going to view those if these keep continuing, if they're going to approve these ones that have already kind of been announced and what that may mean. Because if there's another one that's announced these size, 50, 60 billion, again, I'm just curious your thoughts. Well, I can take a bit of a, a spin on this issue because I was actually just in Saudi Arabia. I was at their Future Investment Initiative Conference, the, the Davos in the desert, and I got the opportunity to interview the Saudi oil minister. And there has been a, a debate about the outlook for demand. Like, when are we going to hit peak demand? And Fatih Burrow, the head of the International Energy Agency in Paris, has been out for the last couple of years essentially saying, like, don't make any more investments in oil and gas. They're not going to be needed. He had come out right after these transactions were announced and essentially said, like, oil majors, you're probably making a foolish bet. You're going to potentially have a stranded asset. Demand is, you know, peaking sooner than you think. And it was so interesting, the Saudi oil minister, because he basically said, look, the actions by Chevron and Exxon, that indicates that they see significant runway for oil demand. They would not be making these investments, doing these deals, if they thought they were going to have a stranded asset. So it was really interesting to be sitting on the stage in Saudi Arabia where you'd think we'd be having a conversation about the war, having a conversation about OPEC, and actually a non-trivial amount of the conversation was about what this M&A activity signaled about the future outlook for demand. That's been my point. Dan will back me up on this for a while. I've said whether or not these deals get through, you know, regulatory and the different things, it doesn't even matter. The fact that ExxonMobil thinks or, you know, has the clarity to do a pioneer deal at $59.5 billion. And then on the heels of that, Chevron says, you know what, we need Hess at $50 billion. That speaks volumes as to what they see in terms of the 5, 10, 25-year runway that I think they still have. And then you throw on top of that, the old dude in Nebraska now owns 25% of Occidental Petroleum. I mean, that's not just haphazard either. So there's a viability in the energy space that right now, at least, the stocks aren't taking into consideration. Yeah, so I think that has been that. Because think about this a couple years ago when we had COVID. I remember people kept saying, like, we're hitting peak demand. Like, it's over. You're going to think about a new business model if you're an oil-producing country and how quickly the tide has turned. In terms of new entrance to OPEC, is there a shot that Brazil, speaking of soccer, gets in and is that going to come up at the end of the month? You think you think we'll hear a little bit more? Neymar is injured. Yeah. But um, yeah. no, when we think about Brazil, where have we seen significant non-OPEC supply growth? We brought up the United States. Brazil is the other country. So I would be watching whether Brazil would consider entering OPEC. You've had statements from OPEC officials that the door might be open to a Brazilian entry into OPEC. The question is, what would Brazil get out of that? But from the standpoint, if you are OPEC and you are looking to essentially bolster your control over supply markets, like having Brazil in there and having Brazil subject to production agreements, that would be something that I think if you are 
trying to ensure that you retain your role as a central banker of oil, I would want Brazil in my producer group. And what would that mean to someone like PBR, Petrobras? I mean, what, what would your take be? What would be your initial reaction? Because I wouldn't be able to guess which way it would go on that. Well, again, like I think there could be a, a dispute of people saying like, maybe I don't want to join because maybe I want to just continue to like produce everything I can. Like once you join OPEC, you are subject to collective production decisions. Now, you can try to flout those decisions, but why would you be an OPEC in the first place? So I could see that some of the potential pushback of joining OPEC would be from those that did not want to be subject to outside rules on your production capabilities. From just crude, again, back to like the macro, and some of the data out of China, it just purely deflationary, right? And so when you see the move, and we just talked about, you know, 95 to 75, what do you think crude oil here is saying about global demand, global growth? Obviously, there's been a lot of debate for a year and a half now about the U.S., the the economy here. We know the European economy, how it's been affected by the war in Ukraine. I'm just curious, like, what does this say to you right now, $75 crude? And what would it say to you if it went to 65? Obviously, there's a whole host of reasons why that would be bullish for corporate earnings and the like here. But if it really is a demand thing, it's not as much a supply thing. I'm just curious, like, where are you shaking What's out? What's so interesting is that we can talk about all the, the headwinds for oil on the macro side, but then you still get these 2 million barrel year on year growth. And you look at next year and that's, we're getting similar predictions. And so, yes, the recent data out of China has been a bit concerning, particularly on exports and particularly on refinery utilization rates. And the question is, is that seasonal? Is there something more serious that it's telling us about the global demand for oil? But like Chinese imports have still been holding up. And this year, up to the latest data we saw, like Chinese, Chinese imports were, were solid this year. And so there is a, a question about how much are we reacting to the fear about China and how much is actually being realized in the data. But the, again, the most recent data, what is worrying people are the the slowdown we see in Chinese exports? Because the question is like, does that mean that there is less global demand for the product? I think that Dan's question, I think goes back to, are they hoarding because the economic data out of China is bad? Right. Like it's slowing. So the question is, are they hoarding in the, these deals with Russia and buying it at We cheap had price? seen pretty good refinery utilization rates over the summer. That is softened. And so again, that's what is causing some concern. And the issue you bring up is, is that China had great deals. I mean, just back up the truck in terms of taking the Russian barrels. Now, what is interesting with the front loading of sanctions relief on Venezuela, like to me, that's an amazing story because initially we were looking at providing Venezuela with sanctions relief when they held the election. So in return for holding elections, if they are good elections, we will lift sanctions. We basically said, nope, you know what? We're lifting the sanctions now. And have your election. And if it's a bad election, we'll put them back in place. And Maduro is like, great. So they just had, the opposition just had primaries. And he's like, I'm not recognizing that. I'm not going to let Machado, who's the strongest opposition candidate, run against me. Like, he's not giving the White House a lot to work with in terms of it being a good election for 24. But we've already said, like, you can have the sanctions relief. That means Venezuelan barrels will come to the United States. The question is, for China, does that mean you're losing out on your 
discounted Venezuelan barrels because they were sanctioned, the country was under sanction. So I think that's going to be an interesting question is if China doesn't have access to cheap Venezuelan barrels, if Russian barrels aren't looking so good, and what happens with the Iranian barrels, like, is that going to change their buying patterns? 1930s, late 20s into the 1930s, U.S. economy was in shambles. Unemployment rate was ridiculously high. We got ourselves out of it, no small part, our entry into World War II. That's just factually true. I bring that up because Danny mentioned China has been hoarding things. They have not only energy, but a swath of different commodities for an extended period of time, which is something they've done over the years, seemingly more so now. Their economy's in shambles. Their teen unemployment rate is at least 25%, if not higher. One of the ways to get yourself out of situations like that, do you look at that and you're connecting my dots for me? Do you think of that the same way? I mean, obviously the concern anyone should have at this moment is a war over Taiwan. That is something that would have huge economic implications globally. What I find fascinating, again, spending so much time in the Middle East is you'll have countries that will say, our relationship with Russia is purely tactical for OPEC, but we are not going to get on the wrong side of China. Mm -hmm. Our economic future lies in the Mm -hmm. East. Don't ask us to choose sides over Taiwan. We do not want to get involved in any type of fight that you might have in the United States with China. I think that would be, we have the war in Ukraine, we have this war in the Middle East, like that would all be overshadowed by a war with China. Which empowers, that they know that, and that I'm sure emboldens them, maybe not a land war, but you know some sort of blockade, whatever the, the lead up to something would be. I think is almost inevitable at this point. I think another question is, is there some type of conflict that's in the economic sphere that we should be concerned about? So you, we bring up renewables. If you look at the supply chain for renewables, they are dominated by China, particularly for things like graphite. And so the question is, you know, we talk about OPEC, but people would say that when you think about renewables and EVs, you're talking about an OPEC of one, which is China. Like, what does that mean when we think about the energy transition, having a country like China have such an outsized role in the entire supply chain? What are your thoughts on uranium? Because I don't know how much work you've done. I know it's not a replacement for oil, but I'm just curious where it sits right now because nuclear is all of a sudden becoming, you know, much more um, palatable. I should say. And, and are we going to see continued moves? Because that sector has been on fire. I wish I could tell you that I, I followed uranium, but I, I like the question on nuclear because the question is, can you reach any of these net zero targets without nuclear? And I think that is, you know, clearly it looks like that is an impossibility. And so to me, the question is like, how many more players, like, again, I watched the Saudi ambitions to have a civilian nuclear program. Like so many countries, when they're thinking about these targets, nuclear is the answer. But does that also have proliferation risks as well? I'm going to say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Japan produces nothing but great baseball players. They have a problem. They have a major problem going on. If you think about what's happening with their currency, with their bond market, but this plays into the energy space in a pretty major way. Thoughts on are the developments there. So what is so interesting about Japan is that when you think about big consuming countries, China is pretty silent when you have these major moves 
upwards. I think probably privately they express concern about that, but they don't make many public statements about their concerns about rising energy prices. India, on the other hand, Indian ministers will be out complaining. They will criticize OPEC after meetings, saying it's not helpful if it's a consuming country. Japan tends to be quite quiet, but Recently, we've had some public statements from Japan when prices were rising expressing concern about rising oil prices. And that's something that's a bit new coming from Japan. So that's something that we would be paying close attention to. We haven't seen so much of that type of complaint before from that country. I could do this for the next hour, as you can obviously tell. But petrodollars, I mean, if you think about and you're laughing because you know, I mean, but this is something that's been talked about for years but it's not a linear move in terms of the, the conversation. Like this thing seems to be moving exponentially now in terms of the role of the U.S. dollar as a global currency, specifically through the lens of crude oil, because quite frankly, that's all that really matters in this equation. I love this question because I always get when uh, when are when are we going to stop trading oil in dollars? Is there going to be a move off the dollar? And I think what is so interesting is we were so close to having this big U.S.-Saudi strategic deal. And I was told that part of the conversation involved trying to get assurances that the dollar would remain dominant in the trade and that you wouldn't basically say, okay, you can do 10% of the trade in Chinese currency because once you break that it's seal, it's over. it's over. And so I think this is seen by this administration as a incredibly important goal is to maintain the dominance of the dollar. But, but the more that we pile on it, economic debt. sanctions, yeah. yes. Well, no, but hold on a second. Yes, sanctions, yeah, but $33 trillion yeah. in debt makes it very difficult for the currency to maintain that status when you're going to get downgrades from the likes of Moody's and the Standard and & Poor's. And when you see bond auctions like we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that all becomes very tenuous very quickly. Absolutely. And then the other thing really from a practicality standpoint is the dollar and the dominance of the dollar is an incredible tool in the sanctions arsenal. Like, what do we say to countries when we want you to stop trading with another country? We say we're going to impose a secondary sanction. And if you have any access to U.S. capital markets, do any transaction in the U.S. dollar, we can go after you. It gives us a unilateral authority to sanction. The dominance of the dollar can be weaponized. And I think a number of countries are like, let me figure out how I can do non-dollar transactions so I can essentially de-risk the U.S. sanctions architecture. This has been, I love this conversation. I mean, I mean the fact that she's here and not and doing some undercover stuff, but she's here with <laughs> she, us. This right might now. be undercover. It's crazy, right. As far exactly. we know. I exactly. mean, this might be a dual purpose. Halima, you're the absolute best. I think I can speak for Dan and Danny when I say that. Thank you for joining us again. We will absolutely have you back on. Thank you so much. All right, stick around for our conversation with Art Delacruz, the CEO of Team Rubicon. Welcome back to On The Tape. We are joined by Art Delacruz. He is the CEO of Team Rubicon, and it is Veterans Day today. You served our country in the Navy as a naval aviator, and you continue to serve through your work with Team Rubicon, and we thought it would be a perfect opportunity to have you on to share with our listeners more about your mission and how they can get involved. And obviously, shout out to our friend, Jake Wood, who is the founder of Team Rubicon, former CEO, who'd been working with you for years before you came the CEO, and obviously Joe Marchese of Human Ventures, who's on the board of Team Rubicon. So 
Art, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. I know the guy has has known a lot about Team Rubicon over the last few years. We had Jake Wood on probably in and around the time that you were taking over as the CEO. For our listeners, it's just really an interesting time to be able to get a, a little bit about your mission. It seems what you guys are charged to do, and we want to hear all about it. There's no shortage of opportunities for you to deploy Team Rubicon gray shirts. And, and then also just the timing here, you're somebody who served our country for a very long time. You continue to serve through Team Rubicon, just deploying lots of vets at a time where you're giving them a whole host of different purposes and new skills and and the like here and in a time where a lot of uncertainty around the world here. So we want to get your take on all of that. But again, let's start with the mission of Team Rubicon here, just so our listeners can hear it straight from you. Yeah. So Team Rubicon was actually founded in 2010 by Jake Wood, who you've interviewed, as you talked about. And since that time, the organization's really a evolved. And now we are a veteran-led humanitarian organization that helps global communities before, during, and after natural disasters and crises. Uh, Certainly, as you mentioned, there is no shortage of any of those. And our goal is to be able to help people on their worst day. Talk about your background, though, how you found Team Rubicon, how they found you, but your journey to where you are today. So the journey to get to where I am today is really you write a little bit of history and then you you match it up with luck. So I spent 22 years in the Navy as a naval officer. I flew F-14s and F-18s and had a breadth of experiences across those 22 years to include commanding squadrons. I was a Top Gun instructor. So a lot of time with men and women who had worn the uniform. I retired in 2013. And that same year, as I was sitting at my first job outside a uniform, I felt like something was missing. And on a chance encounter, someone said, hey, you got to go meet this guy, Jake Wood. He's starting up this organization called Team Rubicon. It's about a mile away from here. And Jake and I started that friendship back in 2013. And every year he'd come up to me and say, hey, would you be interested in joining this team and growing the vision? And in 2016, I looked at my wife, I looked at our four kids, and I said, I think it's time. And Jump Ship helped Jake start Team Rubicon now in its sixth year to see if we could grow it and the amazing things men and women who volunteered and wore the gray shirt could do around the world. Talk to us a little bit about like that mission in a way, because again, it seems like you've served our country and you you understand the ideals of that service, but you guys have created something that I, I think gives a lot of folks who are looking for something. You went to the private sector, but you went back to something, to a nonprofit to serve again. Talk to us a little bit how that is ingrained in the mission of Team Rubicon. Service is really the main point. Yeah, I yeah. I think um, when you talk about service, it's a service that Team Rubicon delivers, but it's also a service that's delivered to the people who volunteer a part of Team Rubicon. And after 22 years of wearing a uniform, and then this, call it abrupt change, as I took off that uniform and retired, I like to say that I'd built these muscles and working with men and women who are wearing the Navy uniform and deploying around the world and having this really clear mission set, and all of a sudden it's gone. So you've got these muscles that you want to use and you don't want them to atrophy. You're in a completely different role in the civilian sector. And now all of a sudden you go, wait, through Jake Wood, through this vision, you can reconnect with community. You're wearing a gray shirt now instead of a Navy uniform. You can reattain this identity that you had and having something bigger than yourselves. And certainly the mission outside of wearing a military uniform, this mission of going into communities that are ravaged or impacted by disasters 
in knowing you can make a difference, all of that resonated. And we see it over and over and over in all of our volunteers from all walks of life that they can connect across these three different dimensions. And it was certainly no different for me. Service is everything. And I grew up in the shadow of West Point, a town called Croton on the Hudson, but all the academies have their mystique, their history. What was it like at the Naval Academy? Why did you select the Naval Academy? You obviously probably got to pick Air Force, Naval Academy, West Point. Something obviously drew you there. Guy, first of all, that shadow is actually from the Naval Academy. <laughs> <laughs> cast across West Point for the Naval Academy. No, actually, you know, my journey to the Naval Academy was luck. Again, I'd gone to a civilian college for a year. Similar to my transition when I retired, something was missing. I'd hoped to play sports in college. I didn't quite make the cut. And I just couldn't occupy my time solely with academics. And I decided, hey, I'm going to see if I can join the Navy. I ended up at the Naval Academy. And I think the Naval Academy taught me different things, how to lead and how not to lead. But ultimately, those four years, again, around these midshipmen who were all aligned in attending this different type of college and then having a different output, thankfully, put me in situations where, again, I would find myself in uniform serving with men and women. And I don't think that's any different from any of these service academies or any of the commissioning or any of the boot camps. People go there. There's a reason it's called a uniform because you align people to this mission and all of a sudden they connect with the people left and right and in front and behind and you connect around this mission that you have to work as a team to accomplish. Let's talk a little bit about like individual missions when a disaster happens in this country and, and sometimes around the world, how, how Team Rubicon deploys their gray shirts. Give, give our listeners a sense of kind of what falls under the purview of a disaster. What are unique disasters, and I don't mean this shedding any light on them, that you guys are really well equipped to deal with? And, and talk to us a little bit about how you serve throughout these sorts of disasters whether it's a, a short period of time or whether you're deployed there for a while to see this thing through. Why don't we start first with a disaster? So we generally define a disaster as an overlap of a hazard with a population of people. And when the impact on that population of people overwhelms that community, it's a disaster. There are unmet needs and services that can't be provided internally, and we want to help. So that disaster piece happens in large communities, and it happens in small communities across the country. And what Team Rubicon does is we, again, bring, call it easy-to-attain skills. Can you muck out a house? Can you drag wet carpet out of a flooded home to high-skilled things like delivering health services in faraway places like Morocco or Malawi, which we've done this year. In all of those cases, our job is to try to provide stability for the clients that we're serving, the survivors impacted by the disaster, to find a way to give them a more stable and more secure tomorrow, and also to ensure that our volunteers who I treat as a really important customer, are getting the most out of the, the gift they're giving us, which is free time and energy. So they have to have some type of payback. I want them to connect with the service. For military veterans, I want them, again, to reunite with community identity and purpose. For any civilian who gives us their time, I want them to look in the rearview mirror as they walk or drive away and say, I made a difference in someone's life. Obviously, disasters happen seemingly every week and around the globe. But do you look for opportunities to go help or do people reach out to 
you? Is it some sort of combination of those two things? Yeah, I think it's becoming a combination of two things. And, you know, we've grown from the initial eight volunteers that Jake assembled in Haiti in 2010 to close to 175,000 registered volunteers. So a disaster strikes, there's a good chance that there's someone associated with a gray shirt is located nearby. They're going to have some connection to the community. They're going to be able to, you know, raise the flag and say, hey, I think this is a community that needs some help. If they can do that, then the machine falls into place. So it becomes this really virtuous cycle. We can increase the number of volunteers. We have sensitivity to the community needs and the community composition. We can more pinpoint the delivery of services. And that's how you get to the point where people are more asking than us asking if they need us in that time. And I see it in our reports that are coming out almost on a daily basis because of these disasters, where it's actual communities reaching out to Team Rubicon because they know how to get in touch with us. They know what we can do, and they know the type of quality services we'll deliver. Speak to the process of volunteering. How does that work? Somebody's listening to this. They say, you know what? I want to be a gray shirt. I want to volunteer. Walk me through it. The starting point for volunteering is I can't get you in the field if I can't ask you to go. So if they go to teamrubiconusa.org, and they give me their email and their phone number, I am willing to ask you for the next 10 years, 100 times or 200 times, can you go? And I will take no every time you answer for that one yes that'll eventually come. So the first piece is you have to just give us a way to to reach out to you. So a lot of people say, hey, I don't have the time right now. I tell them, you'll know when you have time and when it's the right time to volunteer, but put us in a situation where we can ask for your gift of time and energy. So that's the first piece of it. The second barrier that people often identify in doing this is they say, what kind of specialized skills do we need? You don't need any specialized skills. Mucking out a house is physically demanding and not that hard. You know, if you have disabilities of some sort, we have remote type of jobs that are incredibly important for getting our volunteers deployed. And then if you have specialized skills, those things always come into play. I think of places like Bermuda after Hurricane Dorian, where someone who came to muck out a house suddenly says, I have skills and I assemble solar systems back home. And someone else says, I'm an electrician. Someone else says, says I'm a plumber. And by pure happenstance, we get the pump running at this house we're at because, again, all of those conditions come together. The other one is a lot of people think you can only apply the jobs you're in. We have doctors and surgeons who volunteer with us and they say, the one thing I don't want to do is surgery or be a doctor. Give me a sledgehammer and let me do some hard physical work against something that needs to be torn down. So you have a database, I would imagine, of your 175,000 growing, I'm sure, on a weekly basis of skill sets, locations, ability to deploy, that type of thing. Is that accurate? So this becomes a technology company at a certain level. Yeah, technology has become a huge investment of ours and the return has been amazing. We are enabled by technology. As an example, if you register as a volunteer, we know where you are. You can input the skills you have. Any training you take while a volunteer gets cataloged but what it allows us to do, and you know, we've, we've validated your address, is we might have a disaster strike and we'll say, hey, we've identified all the gray shirt volunteers inside of a 100, 200, 400 mile ring, and we will send an email and an SMS just to those people inside of the ring until we get the critical mass that we need to do the work. If we have to go outside of that, we can expand that ring. If we have to look for specialized skills, we can look for specialized skills. One of the recent missions we had was sending 
people to deliver health services in Morocco after the earthquake. And you can't take a person off the street and say, what do you know about water sanitation and hygiene? But we have that cataloged and people have been trained so we can assemble eight people that are going to deploy across the world and provide fresh water for 15,000 people. So that investment enabled by technology becomes huge in delivering services. What is the team that identifies needs and ident- we're going to need 1,800 people at this site over the next three weeks with this skill set. How does that get figured out? At what level does that get figured out, if that makes sense? The math gets pretty easy when you see a lot of these disasters. You say, we need as much as we can get. We need as much as we're funded for. But when we get in those specialized skills, these very specific actions that need to be taken, it becomes a bit of a, a matchmaker game. When is availability at what time does that need to be done? And again, our tech systems enable that and operations planners enable that. And the community we're serving ideally has buy-in and tells us when they need that. A great example recently is the fires in Maui. Everyone rushed into that situation. We were able, because of our relationship, to stand back and say, what do you need and when do you need us? So we started doing things like donation management and traffic management, but now we're deeply involved in the recovery of that community and removal of debris. We're managing the emergency operations center they have. So it depends also on the what and the when, and we can match those up. So that's a great example. It's really topical, and it's something that it felt so far away from some folks, let's say us here in New York, and and, and just the pure devastation that that existed there. How are you guys operating there? If someone, let's just say, I want to help in that situation, other than giving, and we're going to talk about the giving, and we're going to talk about some of your amazing corporate partners and the sort of work that individuals can also do in that front from the donation standpoint, but how are you guys deploying people and resources right now, let's say, in Hawaii? Yeah, Hawaii's been really interesting. Interesting. And one of the, to go back to Guy's earlier question about the number of volunteers is we actually have 1,100 volunteers on the island. So we were able to match up people who had understood Hawaii, understood the culture, which again is very nuanced, understood through family and friends the turmoil that community was going through and had unique sensitivity. We're able now to respond very locally. We sent some people from CONUS here to Hawaii because they had very specialized skills, but by and large, we're able to have Hawaiians serving Hawaiians just like we'd have Floridians serving Floridians after a hurricane. So that localized response augmented by the ability to pull people in from all over the country becomes really powerful. What does success look like? And then after the mission is accomplished, what does that look like? You Then you do a debrief, I'm sure, with the people that were on the ground. Like, Walk us through that process. You know, one of the really important things to understand is that the mission is never really done. So the first piece is how do you maintain that continuity as you do it? Our organization has an eye towards continual improvement. So we do our best to try to understand how we could do it better through after action reports, which is something, you know, we take deeply from the military culture a lot of the volunteers came from. So that's incredibly important. The other piece that I really value, and this is, you know, appropriate to people who've made donations to Team Rubicon, is I'm failing if I don't tell anybody who's given us a dollar that it's not actually a donation, that it's an investment in resilience and adaptability in the future. Because the reality is you may give me $100 and say, I want this to put someone back in their home. You put a family back in a home and you have a child that has security 
a safe environment to live in, to breathe in. You put $100 into training a volunteer. If I give them a great experience, they'll come back over and over again because of those $100. So I think not just in the recovery process itself, as you maintain a connection with that community, you maintain the ability to check back in on that community. And typically, you will leave that community because we'll have local volunteers with a better capability and capacity to handle the next disaster. Give us a sense of some of the principles that I think guide your mission in a way, because again, in the U.S., maybe it's less tricky than it is in other places. I know you guys do deploy overseas with disasters. How do you guys think about just the idea of neutrality, especially given the fact that I think a lot of folks identify the fact that you are deploying on many occasions former uh, military folks? Our guiding principles are aligned with humanitarian principles, impartiality, neutrality, you know, serving everybody. One of the things we specifically pinpoint here is there are really three major drivers that we've identified that cause these types of disasters. The first one is climate change is obviously having a huge impact. One of the interesting statistics I tell people is in 1980, it was 82 days between billion-dollar disasters. Between 2017 and 2021, that time between billion-dollar disasters had gone down to 18. So 400% increase in the number of disasters. So there's no shortage of a marketplace you know, that needs our service. So that becomes incredibly important as we drive forward in delivering these services. I'm sure like the Red Cross, there's carryover in terms of where you're servicing, who you're helping. You come into contact with a lot of really amazing organizations. How does that work? Because obviously when you have too many boots on the ground, sometimes there's too many generals and people start to get their signals crossed. Walk us through that. Yeah, it starts with something we're, we're fond of saying is do what you do best and partner for the rest. We work side by side with the Red Cross where they might be sheltering a family. We're trying to provide stability in that family home by providing a shield around their house by tarping their roofs and boarding up the windows that might have leaked or ensuring that the home is going to be mold-free while they're feeding and servicing. If there's one thing I've learned in my time at Team Rubicon is you don't have to compete for work because there's so much left to be done. And again, as we increase in the number of disasters, the frequency, the duration, the severity, that continues to grow and there's a gap that can't be met. This year in 2023 has actually been a record year for disasters, $24 billion disasters by the end of September, which means once every 11 days, there's a billion dollar disaster. And for every billion dollar disaster, we're serving three other disasters. We're up, we'll probably finish a year at close to 130 operations. So for every billion dollar disasters, there's three that haven't even made the newspaper where we're serving. And we know we're just chewing away at the tip of the iceberg along with all of these different partners. So for us, focus is key. Every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. So we better be saying yes to the right things. And one of the skills people don't often think about is you have to be really good at saying no. Let's talk a little bit about some of your partners. I was fortunate enough to be at your Salute to Service event last year. And I was sat at a table, I, I think with you and Jake and, and Lloyd Blankfein, your old boss at Goldman Sachs. And you just mentioned this anniversary of Superstorm Sandy. And I, I remember there was a lot of great conversation. A lot of Goldman folks spoke at that thing and, and how they just saw you 
your mission back then, and they just said, we have to be a part of what they're trying to do to help our community. Talk to us a, a little bit about some of these corporate partners. I know Goldman's been a great one. I know you have a lot of others too. And and talk a little bit about how, if, if someone's listening and, and they're a corporate and they can really deploy some resources of a larger organization, just then one person, how can they help Team Rubicon? I'll start at the quantity has a quality all its own. If you have a dollar or five dollars when you're interested in donating or investing in Team Rubicon, our mission, our vision, and our people, go to teamrubiconusa.org. For the corporations out there, one of the really amazing things that Jake taught me early on, he said, listen, we'll take money from anybody, right? But we'll only partner with certain organizations. And when it becomes really fruitful, and it was true with Goldman Sachs, it's true with the Home Depot and the Home Depot Foundation, it's true with local partners like GAF, is they understand that their company's culture their mission, their motives, which again are driven in these for-profit companies, they align again with the expectations of their people, their shareholders, their responsibilities in the community, and they make huge strides when they support organizations like ours. Goldman Sachs specifically, Jake talks often about how this was that moment where the shop either folded up or we had enough juice to survive and thrive. And again, unfortunately, it was centered around incredible disaster, superstorm, standy, but you can see what it's created. Volunteers had the visibility. The government had the legitimacy and understanding that we could do a professional job. And volunteers flocked to us and said, I want to be a part of this incredible organization. From that moment, 11 years ago, we've grown into an organization. And I think we're probably, you know, 13 years and ideally a hundred year journey where Team Rubicon, again, creates a legacy of service for people across the country. You mentioned you have four kids. I don't know how old they are, but I'm certain they're proud of you. I'm sure your wife is extraordinarily proud as well. But what are you most proud of in terms of your tenure here at the organization? Selfishly, this has been really gratifying for me, but hopefully you won't air this, but I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I know that- I'm leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I need to run an organization. And I've always been driven by curiosity. I've been driven by working around people that I love to be around. And I've certainly been driven by a noble mission. That's incredibly gratifying for me. I wake up every day excited about what I do. I think to the point about my family, they've learned different ways of giving. They understand that this is something that I do to support my family, but it's something that's also driven by my hope to make a dent in a world of need. Getting to know you, Art, over the last couple of years has been my true pleasure and hearing so much about the origin stories of this organization. Guy and I, again, I want to go back to last year's salute to service because it wasn't just that Goldman Sachs was looking to help this local community. A lot of their people wanted to work within an organization to do it themselves. And you guys provided both of that. And so to me, I just find it pretty fascinating what you guys do, how you deploy the sorts of folks that you have veterans working working side by side with local volunteers. It's truly a great organization. And Guy and Danny and myself, we've been supporters of your organization. And we just want to encourage our listeners to go to teamrubiconusa.org. There's a donate button. Give there. If you give a minimum of $25, we're going to match up to $5,000. We're going to send you guys an on-the-tape hat. If you take a screenshot of that donation and send it, you know who to bug, Amanda Diaz. That would be contact at riskreversal.com. And we'll do that. We really just can't suggest enough to go check out ways to donate your time, your money, and 
that sort of thing. And we're just truly honored to have you here on the pod, Art. So we really appreciate it. And this is airing on Veterans Day. And we just want to say thank you for your service and how you continue to serve. Thank you. I appreciate you helping to share our story and certainly bring attention to a great organization and most importantly, amazing people. Honored to meet you, Art. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Art. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.